is to uh, give us bread every single week. Uh, and um, it gets picked up. Lord, thank you again for bringing us together here on this last Sunday of 2019. Lord, we know that um, you know the future. I pray whatever what's in our past that you uh, taught us lessons we we, were, we learned this past year. I pray we'd not um, forget those things. And I pray, Lord, as we look to the future, we would plan for it. But I just pray, Lord, that you would always make us live in the present and, and to be real in the present, to be active in the present, to be serving in the present, and Lord, so we don't miss out on what you have for us each day. And so, Lord, thank you for the word of God, and thank you for your servant Dave as he is uh, coming to the end of his seminary uh, studies, and I pray everything he's learning there, uh, he would just uh, be able to share with us when he comes back, and, uh, and I just pray you continue to bless him and Emma there as they finish up that last semester given the strength uh, to do that and then uh, to be able to pack up and reorganize and, and come back to New Jersey. And I, I just thank you, Lord, for him and how you've been developing him and growing him in the word. Uh, and I just pray, Lord, as he comes and breaks open the bread of life to us, to us, Lord, you just nourish our souls with it and challenge us, challenges, challenge us, Lord, to be ready uh, for your coming. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good now? All right, all right. Well, it was our first wedding anniversary, and I had surprised my wife with box seats to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. You know, it's your first wedding anniversary. You don't want to mess it up. You want to make it really special. And so when I told her in the morning that we were going to the Met to see an opera, she was thrilled. Now, I had done my planning, got everything in place. I looked at the train schedule the day before, because we lived over in Boundbrook, right next to, or right near the train station, if we were just going to take the train into New York City. And I checked the schedule the night before and selected a train time that would get us to New York City, get us to, uh, get us to the city, and then get us time, plenty of time to get over to the opera so that we're there right when it begins. So we head on over to the train station at the appointed time, and we get on the train platform, and there's no train. And we wait a little while, and there's still no train. My wife's looking at me. I'm looking at my watch. I'm thinking to myself, where's the train? And I go over to the train station platform, and they have a little schedule of train arrival and departures, and then a very, very sinking feeling comes over me as I realize that the train time that I had selected the day before is not on the schedule. I'm thinking to myself, what happened? Did they, did they change it last minute? Is there a totally new schedule now? But then I realized something. Oh, the time's on there all right. But it was the arrival time rather than the departure time. In other words, the time I thought we were to get on the train was actually the time that that train was arriving in New York City. And the next train wouldn't be coming for a long while. So realizing this, swallow a lump in my throat and explain to my wife, we might be late to the opera. But we do a little digging online and we find out that if you show up late to the Met Opera, they won't admit you. Not until at least after intermission. So you're going to miss half the show. So we thought to ourselves, well, why bother going? Let's just get a refund and go some other time because <laughs> a wasted experience. And then we also find out the Met doesn't offer any refunds. So how this day of joy and celebration turned out to be a day of just disaster. My little mistake was going to cost us our enjoyment of the show 
bunch of money and my wife's happiness and maybe her respect for my planning. <laughs> Happy anniversary! Actually, that day did turn out well. And I'll tell you the story about that another time. But it was a very painful lesson in making sure you're really ready for what's important in life. Now, have you learned that lesson? If you haven't yet in your life, I'm sure you will. But what about when it comes to spiritual things? Spiritual realities, eternal realities. Are you ready for them? God in his word commands that all people should get ready to meet Jesus Christ. Either in death or at his coming. But how many people do you think are ready to meet Christ? How many people think they're ready when they're actually not? Even Christians. I mean, ask yourself. Are you ready to meet the Lord Christ? If he were to come back today, what would be your response to him? Would you say, oh, my Lord, I've been waiting for you. Or would you say, wait, I'm sorry, but I'm not ready. Could you give me a little more time? We've come now to the end of 2019. And you didn't meet Jesus this last year. I mean, you're still alive. And the Lord didn't come back to snatch his church yet. But what about next year? What about even these few days before the next year? If he were to cause you to meet him in those times, would you be ready? We're going to look at a parable in Scripture today that's all about readiness to meet Christ. The title of my message this morning, you can see on the PowerPoint, is Don't Be Late, Be Ready. If you haven't yet, make sure your Bibles are open to Matthew 25. That's page 987 in the Pew Bible. And this is where we see the parable of the ten virgins. This parable appears in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. That's the title we give to the sermon in this part of Matthew's Gospel. It spans Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. It has much to do with when Christ will come again and how God's people should get ready to meet him. Now to be a little bit more specific, and we won't have time to explore this right now, Jesus Christ our Lord speaks regarding Israel's future. During the tribulation period, that's that period of about seven years before Christ comes back bodily to the earth to establish his kingdom. Many of the exhortations in the Olivet Discourse, they are intended to be directly heeded and applied by future believers living during that period. That tribulation period where they know that the Lord's return is very near, but they don't know the day or the hour. Now, even though that's the direct application of, these, of many of the parts of this sermon, there is still, the principles here are relevant for us. They're relevant for all of us because we must also get ready to meet Christ in one way or another. And this is what we'll see as we examine our parable. So let's now actually read the parable now. now Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. This is our Lord Jesus speaking. Verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. 
and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is a simple but profound parable. And it's given to us that we might not make a simple but profound mistake. The main truth of the parable can be stated in this way. Be ready to meet Christ and enter his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, those listening today, you need to be ready to meet Christ and enter his kingdom. This truth is explained in three parts in this parable, and we'll see those parts as we go along. The first part is in verses 1 to 4, where we see the characters. Look at those verses again. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now this first part of the parable is all about introducing introducing us to the main characters. Notice the word then in beginning of verse 1. It could also be translated at that time. Jesus has just been speaking about the coming kingdom. And now he's saying there's a time coming, a future moment involving God's kingdom that's going to be just like what this parable depicts. And what does this parable depict? Well, it's a marriage, or part of a marriage. What we have depicted throughout this parable is part of the traditional Jewish marriage process. You see, in Jesus' day, for two Jews to get married, they would follow a certain five-step sequence. If you were going to get married, first the fathers of the two families would have to negotiate a contractual marriage agreement. And second, the bride and bridegroom would come together in a betrothal ceremony where they are legally married to each other, but they do not yet live together or consummate the marriage. This is where Mary and Joseph were when she was found to be pregnant. The third step is that the bridegroom would go away to prepare a home for his bride. And yes, it's just like what Jesus says in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Fourth, the bridegroom would come in procession to get his bride. And for this procession, the bridegroom would gather his closest friends, his best men, if you will, and he would go forth in a joyous parade in the evening. They'd travel through the streets of their local town or village or wherever they were until they reached the bride's house or they would collect the bride and her companions. And these companions would be unmarried young virgins. They were usually friends or family of the bride, or bride and bridegroom, so they're a lot like modern bridesmaids. And of course, these are the virgins that we see in our text. Now, when the full wedding party was collected, the whole band then travels through the rest of the village until the group reaches the bridegroom's house, where we see the fifth and final part of the wedding process the marriage process, and that is the wedding itself at the bridegroom's house. The bride and bridegroom are formally united in a wedding ceremony that's followed by several days of festivities. So this would be a time of great joy. The joy already begins in the wedding procession, but it's just maximized at the wedding feast. There's singing and dancing and conversation and enjoyment of copious amounts of food and drink. And during these festivities, the bride and bridegroom would finally consummate their marriage. So this is how you would get married, excuse me, in those days. And our parable takes place during the fourth phase of this, this marriage process. So this is the procession of the bridegroom to collect his bride. Now, you may notice we don't actually see a bride in our text. That's because she's not the focus. We do see, though, the virgin bridesmaids, the companions. And they've apparently been told to meet the bridegroom in a particular place. They've also been told to show up with lamps, or better understood, with torches. These torches would be important for this evening procession because they're going out in the dark. Remember, it's not like today where you just have lights everywhere. They need to bring lights with them. They need to light the procession's way as they move through the town through the night, collecting, or yeah, move through the town and then move back to the bridegroom's house. Now, each bridal member would be expected to carry his or her own torch. 
Now, verse 1 makes all the virgins seem like they're the same. But in verse 2, we see that there actually is an important difference between some of these virgins. We hear that five virgins are foolish and five are prudent. Now, the Greek word for foolish is moros. That may sound like a certain English word. It's where we get the word moron. Same idea. Moros means foolish or even stupid. Five of these versions, they lack foresight and even basic common sense. But the other five versions are called prudent. Greek word behind this term could be translated wise or sensible. These versions are characterized by a practical kind of wisdom and forward thinking. And we can immediately see how their foolishness and prudence manifests itself in verses 3 and 4. Because the foolish virgins were told they take torches without taking any oil with them. The prudent virgins do take oil in flasks. Now, what's the big deal with not taking any oil? Does that really matter? Well, certainly it does. Because you see... The disciples listening to Jesus would have known that taking torches without extra oil would be very foolish. Yes, even stupid. Because ancient torches consisted of a long stick with a bundle of cloth wrapped around one end of it. And you take this bundle and soak it in olive oil and set it alight. That's how the torch burned. As long as there was sufficient oil in the cloth, the torch would burn brightly and consistently. But if the oil was used up, the torch's flame would diminish and smoke until it would finally just sputter out, stop burning altogether. And this didn't take very long to happen. One estimate is that an oil-drenched torch would have burned for only about 30 minutes before more oil would need to be applied to keep it burning. So then you can understand to take a torch without any extra oil is definitely a stupid thing to do. It would be like getting onto a packed highway in the middle of rush hour when your, oil, when your gas gauge is already on E. This is a senseless thing to do. Or it would be like taking flashlights with you on a long camping trip, going into the middle of nowhere, but the flashlight's batteries are really old. You don't know how long they'll work, or even if they'll work at all. But you take these flashlights, and you don't bring any extra batteries. Why would you do that? If you do that, you're just asking for trouble. It's senseless. It's even moronic. And that's exactly what these five virgins are doing here in the parable. They take torches without any extra oil. If the bridegroom is delayed at all in arriving to the meeting place, then any oil that's on the torches is going to be used up. And then what are the virgins going to do? It's definitely foolish. And so we can see that the other five virgins, they are indeed prudent because they take the necessary oil. They've made sure that the car is filled up with gas before they go on the highway. They bring the extra batteries to the camping trip. They know the bridegroom could be delayed for any number of reasons. And they plan accordingly. The bridegroom arrives sooner or later. They will be ready to do what they've been called to do. So then we have these ten virgins commissioned to be ready for the bridegroom's arrival with their torches. We see this at the beginning of the parable. But Jesus says, this is about the kingdom of heaven. What's being talked about here is really regarding the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus saying about the kingdom? Actually, the symbolism of this parable is pretty straightforward. Who's the bridegroom? Well, that's Jesus the Messiah. He already called himself the bridegroom earlier in Matthew, Matthew 9.15. And in the context, it's his second coming that is being anticipated. Who are the virgins? These are people who claim to follow God and expect to enter into his kingdom. More specifically, according to the parable's context in Matthew 24 and 25, these are professing believers in the tribulation period who know that Jesus' return is close. They don't know how close, but they are professing believers and they expect to get into Christ's kingdom. What's the wedding feast? 
wedding feast of the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom. That glorious millennial kingdom promised by Christ and which will be established on the earth when he returns bodily. What's the wait for the bridegroom? That's the wait for Christ's arrival. That's the wait for the kingdom. What are the torches? What do the torches represent? There have been many efforts to interpret the torches in different ways. Some people want to say that they're symbols of good works or of faith. But these interpretations don't really work in the parable, as we'll see. The best way to understand the torches is simply as an illustration of readiness. Torches represent, or they're an illustration of readiness. Because we're going to see the torches will not burn the entire time. If you make it something like faith, then that's going to be problematic. But they do need to be lit at a required time. Some of the virgins will be ready for this. Some of them will not. Having torches and oil ready at the appointed time, it pictures the readiness of believers to meet Christ and enter his kingdom. Now, if this is all true, notice what these first four verses indicate to us about God's people as they wait for Christ. Some of them, even many of them, will not be ready to meet him. Look at the numbers of our text. Five out of ten are not ready. That's a significant portion. Now, this is not a prophecy saying that exactly half. It just means it's going to be a lot. And this, Jesus says, will be true of believers in the tribulation period with people who know that his return is so close. They're seeing signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And yet a significant portion are not ready to meet him. If that's true then, how much more is it true now? Brothers and sisters, many Christians today think that they're ready to meet Christ when they are not. They're not ready to meet him in death. And they're not ready for his snatching away of his church at the rapture. These professing believers may even have a misplaced excitement about meeting Christ. Oh, you know, I'm so looking forward to meeting Jesus. And they don't know. They don't know they're not ready. You need to ask yourselves, can that be you? Are you ready to meet Christ? Are you truly ready? This is the first part of the parable. It introduces the virgins to us. But now let's look at the second part, the crisis. This we see in verses 5 to 9. Look at those again with me. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. It's in these verses that we're introduced to the central problem of this parable. The bridegroom is approaching, but not all are ready. Verse 5 begins by telling us, What do you know? The bridegroom is delayed. We don't know why he's delayed. We're not told, and it doesn't matter. But it does mean that the bridegroom is going to arrive later than everyone expected. In fact, so much time has gone by that the second half of verse 5 says that all the virgins, both foolish and prudent, have nodded off and started sleeping. And we can sympathize with them a little bit, right? I mean, these girls have been waiting for hours. It's the middle of the night now. Nothing's happening. They just couldn't keep themselves awake. Do note that the parable does not condemn them for this. It does not condemn the virgins for falling asleep. But verse 6 says, the bridegroom is finally coming. Their phrase, there was a shout, in verse 6, it indicates a continual action. So, a continual shouting, a loud and continuous cry, people just repeating it. 
right in the middle of the night saying, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. By the way, I think you understand this, the middle of the night would have been a very unexpected time to begin a wedding procession, much less a wedding feast. To give you an idea, it would be like inviting people over to your house for Thanksgiving dinner, but telling them not to come until you specifically call them, and then you only start calling people at about midnight. Hey, everyone, I know it's late, but come on over. Thanksgiving feast is ready. I mean, who would do that? I mean, nobody would, right? I mean, all your guests would have already gone to sleep, probably would have concluded the Thanksgiving feast this Thanksgiving feast that you were touting is never going to happen. Let's just eat something else. There's something similarly surprising happening here in the parable with this bridal procession happening in the middle of the night. But unlike your guests at the theoretical, theoretical Thanksgiving dinner, everyone back then would have known that the Jewish bridegroom had the right to begin his wedding procession and festivities whenever he deemed best especially if he was someone important. So the bridegroom is coming, now, in the middle of the night. And the virgins are awoken out of their sleep by the commotion. And verse 7 says that they then rose and trimmed their lamps. In other words, they were going to put their torches in order. If their torches had been burning when the virgins first arrived at the meeting site, well, the torches would have long burned out. So now was the time to reapply the oil and get those torches burning brightly again. And here's where the crisis occurs, because the foolish realize that they don't have enough oil for their torches. Now, why this issue wouldn't have occurred to them before, we don't know. We are told they are foolish. Maybe they figure there would have been time later to get their acts together and get the necessary oil. Or perhaps... They simply did not expect the bridegroom to come when he did. So in verse 8, the foolish plead with the wise, and they say, give us some of yours. Our torches are going out. They're desperate. But the denying response in verse 9 from the prudent virgins is very emphatic, in the Greek especially. They say, no, there will not be enough if we share. You say, oh, that's a little mean, isn't it? Well, these prudent virgins, they are fundamentally committed to fulfilling the bridegroom's mission as given to them. And so they know they cannot afford to give up their oil. It'd be a little bit like going to the beach and you don't have enough sunblock with you for all the people, so you just try to take that little amount and spread it over everybody. What's going to be the result? Everyone's going to get burned. Similarly, if they share, it may be that all ten torches will go out. And that would be the greatest failure and shame of the bridegroom. So the prudent virgins know they can't share. Instead, they suggest the foolish virgins go and buy for themselves oil from the shopkeepers. Say, how are they going to get it from the shopkeepers in the middle of the night? Well, they could wake them up. A lot of the shopkeepers, they just lived in their... Their shops are right in their homes. But likely they're already awake. I mean, when you got this continual cry, this celebration, this procession, everybody in the town would have been awake. They would would want to see it or be a part of it. And so likely any shopkeepers would already be awake and they could get the oil from them. But it will take time. Either way, it's going to take time. So you can understand the foolish virgins are indeed in a crisis. The unexpected of the... The unexpected arrival of the bridegroom has exposed their unreadiness to meet him. And now they're desperate for a way to resolve their crisis. And you can grasp the spiritual implications of this part of the parable, can't you? Jesus may delay his coming as well. Or he may determine that you're going to meet with him at a time that you do not expect. If you're not ready, well, then you too will be thrown into crisis. But at that late hour, will there be anything that you can do? We see the great crisis in the middle of this parable 
But now let's look at the last part. This is where we see the consequences. Verses 10 to 12. Look at those again with me. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. In this last part, we see the final consequences of the choices that were made in the beginning. Verse 10 begins with a tragic revelation. The bridegroom came while the foolish virgins were trying to fix their mistake. Prudent virgins were ready for him, though. They have their burning torches, and so they gladly go with the bridegroom on the rest of the procession through the town until the group arrives at the wedding feast. And as I said earlier, the procession is just the beginning of the joy. Now for those ready virgins, many more days of feasting and celebration and joy await. But notice at the end of verse 10 it says, And the door was shut. That's an interesting construction. It's a passive verb, which means we don't know who did the action. Whoever shut this door, though, You may notice there's a certain finality in this statement. Perhaps you're reminded of another instance in the scriptures where a door was finally and mysteriously shut. Talking about Noah's flood. As we reach verses 11 and 12, though, we approach the greatest shock of this parable. If you know anything about parables, they're full of surprises. And the great surprise of this parable actually appears right here. In verse 11, we hear that the other virgins, the foolish virgins, they finally reach the wedding feast and they encounter the closed door. They therefore call out to the bridegroom, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And they had good reason to think that their bridegroom would open for them. I mean, consider who they are. They would say, we're good friends. We're family. We're the bridesmaids. Surely you'll let us in, won't you? We're sorry about the torches. We're sorry we were late. Please, won't you let us in? At a typical Jewish wedding feast, the door surely would have been opened. Your family? Come on in. Where have you bridesmaids been? We've been waiting for you. Get in here and enjoy the feast. But look at what this bridegroom says in verse 12. Truly I say to you, he says. That is a very emphatic phrase. Whatever is about to be uttered by the bridegroom is settled truth. It is not flippant. It is not a joke. It's like an official declaration. What is it that the bridegroom says truly? I do not know you. The bridegroom has just disavowed the bridesmaids? He's just forbid his own family, friends, kin from joining the wedding feast? Yes. Because this bridegroom is no ordinary bridegroom. And failure to be ready for him is no ordinary offense. This is where the parable ends. The ready virgins go into the celebration with the bridegroom, but the foolish virgins who are not ready, who arrived too late to the feast, they're barred entrance and totally repudiated. Now, do you see the implications of this final part of the parable? When you meet Jesus, if you're not ready, There will no longer be any way to fix it. No more hope. No way of escape. You won't be able to say, hold on, I'll make things right. It will be too late. You will be too late. And it doesn't matter what association you claim to Jesus while you were on the earth. You can't say, 
But Jesus, I profess to be a Christian. I went to Calvary Community Church. I put my kids in Sunday school. I led a small group. I was a pastor. Surely you'll let me in, won't you? If you're not ready in the way that Christ called you to be ready, what will he say in response? Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Brothers and sisters, isn't that one of the most sobering realities? Imagine Jesus Christ saying those words to you, barring you from his kingdom. Really, this latter part of the parable, it proceeds exactly how Jesus already has said in the book of Matthew, how the coming judgment would proceed with false followers who did not truly know Jesus or keep his word. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You can surely see now why Jesus ends the parable here in Matthew 25 with the conclusion that he does in verse 13. Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is the moral of the parable. Stay alert. Stay awake. Be ready. Keep watching. Be ready for whenever you will meet Christ because you do not know when that will be. It might be sooner. It might be later. It might be sometime you never expected. But you need to be ready. Now, of course, the great question from all of this is, well, how does one become ready? You're saying we need to be ready, but how does one become ready? Well, readiness begins first and foremost by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus proclaimed throughout his ministry, is it not? Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Don't automatically assume that you are a Christian or that you will get into Christ's kingdom. You need to do what Christ said. You need to make sure that you have indeed repented and believed. And how you do that, part of how you do that is by letting God's scriptures examine you. We talk about examining the scriptures, and that's true. We do. We need to do that. But the scriptures need to examine us. That's actually what, G, what um, the writer of Hebrews says in that verse we often quote. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the, the word of God being living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. But notice what that word does. It says it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God discerns and judges you. You need to expose yourself to it. Ask yourselves, have you truly turned from your sins to God? Have you given up your whole self to God? Do you cling tightly only to him and to his gospel? Do you know that gospel? That wonderful news that begins with God as creator. He made every one of us. He made a creation of this earth that was totally beautiful and totally good. And he called for us to serve, worship, and obey him. And even though this was a right thing, even though God is totally worthy of it, we rejected that. We wanted to go our own way. We wanted to do what we wanted to do. We rebelled against God. And we dishonored him. We impugned his holiness. And therefore the wrath of God was rightly placed over us. God says, I am a holy God. I am a just God. I must judge sin as sin deserves. You have rebelled against me? That crime deserves eternal punishment. And that was what we would all receive. And there was nothing we could do about it. Because even our good works, supposedly our good works before God, were all tainted with sin. 
tainted by pride, tainted by selfishness, tainted by the approval, the love of the approval of others. So this left us in an extremely sorry state. We were going to be judged forever by the wrath of God, rightly, and there's nothing we could do about it except that God made a way. And isn't this the beautiful truth that we've been celebrating this Christmas? The Lord made a way by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who lived the perfect life that you should have lived and that I should have lived, and died the death that we deserve. Not simply an excruciating and shameful death on a cross, but one bearing the full wrath of God on himself. Hell for every one of us who believes in him. He suffered that on the cross. He paid it all. And he, he died. He rose again. And he ascended to the Father, showing that his sacrifice was accepted. And the message that we now have is that whoever believes in Christ and in him alone to be his righteousness will be saved and made acceptable to God. Is that the gospel that you believe? Do you proclaim in your heart, it is nothing but the blood of Christ. It is nothing but Jesus' life and his death that makes me right with God. It is not any ritual. It is not any position. It is not any amount of good works. It is all him. And I am simply attached to him by faith. It's not even my faith that makes me right with God. It's Jesus Christ. My faith simply connects me with him. Is that what you believe? That's how you fundamentally, first of all, must become ready to meet Christ. You must repent and believe. You must turn from your sins. You must give up any other way of making yourself acceptable to God except the way he provided, his son. This is the first way we are to make ourselves ready. But there's another way. Be ready by repentance and faith, but also be ready by persevering obedience, by faithful obedience to Christ. If you truly know Jesus and are in him, your salvation, and you know this, it will work itself out in increasing good works and holiness. It's just as James says, James 2.26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Good works do not earn you salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, as I've just been talking about. Faith in Jesus Christ, he's the only one who can make you acceptable to God. But just as faith is the root, good works and holiness are the fruit. So is your life characterized by increasing obedience to your master? Does that obedience even manifest itself in service to your brethren? Love for them? Sacrificial, humble service to them? As time goes on, and as your meeting with Christ is apparently delayed... Is it causing you to become more like Christ or less like Christ? Right before this passage in Matthew 25, there's another parable about a slave. You can't read it right now. But this slave, when he saw that his master was delayed, what did he do? He began to slack off. He began to beat his fellow slaves. He began to eat and drink with drunkards. And that slave was judged. He was repudiated by his master. Is your life like the life of that slave? When you see Jesus delaying, does it cause you to say, oh, I don't really need to be serious about following Christ? Is something holding you back from persevering in obedience to Christ? Something entangling you? What is it? You know what Jesus Christ has called you to do? Make disciples, build up the church, proclaim him to the earth, to the world, be a faithful husband, be a faithful father, be a faithful mother, be a faithful wife. Are you doing these things? What cares or pleasures or worries of the world are preventing you from doing those things? You have a calling. You are to fulfill it. What in your life right now would shame you if you were to meet Christ? 
What would cause you to say, oh, Lord Christ, I'm really sorry that I never dealt with this sin. Oh, Lord Christ, you've come. I'm so sorry that I never obeyed you in this way. Or, God, I, I was... I barely ever did this. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that even if you know Christ, and I praise God that many of you do, you still have to give an account to him one day. Not to determine your salvation. That's all in Christ. But that's how God's going to give you a reward. You're going to have to explain yourself. I'm going to have to explain myself too. And what do you want to be able to say to Christ on that day? Do you want to be spouting excuses or apologies? Or do you want to gladly proclaim like those slaves do in the parable that comes after this? Lord, this is what you gave me, and here's how I was faithful with it. We do need to be ready by repentance and faith. But we also need to be ready by persevering obedience. Are you ready to meet Christ in that way? There's a third way. A third way that we all should get ready to meet Christ. And that is by glad expectation. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus compares the coming kingdom to a wedding feast? I mean, weddings, marriages, they're some of the happiest occasions on earth. And God says, that's what the coming of the kingdom is going to be like. The gladness of our earthly weddings is just a small picture of the comfort, the delight, the blessing of the kingdom to come and the world to come. You know, we were singing Joy to the World. I don't know if you ever thought about the lyrics of that song, but they really most literally apply to Jesus' second coming. Yes, there's a sense that some of those things are true in his first coming. But no more let sins or sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. <laughs> We've got a lot of thorns around us, but one day there won't be. He's coming to establish an awesome kingdom on the earth. And if you know Christ, you're going to be part of it. Revelation 21 and 22 has more to say about those things specifically speaking about the new heavens and the new earth that comes after the kingdom. And you read through those, and it's just so wonderful. What does Jesus say about it? Revelation 21.7, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that you've been invited to the wedding feast of God? And not just invited, but given a special place of honor just like the virgin bridesmaids of our parable. And who are you? Who am I? We're nobodies, less than nothing. We were rebellious sinners against God, and he's put us in an honored place. Remember what Jesus says in another place? He says, when the Son of Man comes, he himself is going to gird himself like a servant, and he's going to wait on his slaves. Why should he do that? Why should he do that for you or for me? And yet, that's what he's promised. If you've been given such a precious invitation and position, will you not then overcome? Will you not then be found ready and faithful to what the bridegroom has called you to do so that you might please him and that you can go in with full joy to celebrate in God's kingdom? The prospect of your great reward should motivate you to overcome sin and distractions. You have the power of God's Spirit in you if you know Jesus Christ. Do you look forward to your coming inheritance in Christ, in his kingdom, the same way that one might look forward to a wedding? Brothers and sisters, there is still time now for each of us to get ready to meet Christ. This parable describes a future date. That date has not yet come, not for each one of us yet. There is time for you to obtain the oil for your torches. There's time for you to repent and trust in Christ by faith. 
believe his gospel. There's time for you to progress, persevere in obedience, and there's time for you to embrace that glad expectation. But that time's not going to last forever. That's the point of this parable. Jesus will eventually come. You will meet him. But will you be ready when you do? Learn. We all must learn from this parable spoken by the Lord about the foolish and the prudent virgins. Don't be like the foolish virgins. They were too late. Be like the prudent virgins. They were ready. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord and God, thank you. Thank you for this word. As we look to this coming year, God, as I think about myself, I think about my brothers and sisters here, would we know that you, you could come at any time or you could call us away from this world? There is no amount of healthiness or skill or wisdom that can keep us alive. There are people younger than us who have died. There are people who have survived to be much older than us. We don't know what you've determined, but we do know what you've called us, what you've commanded us to do, what you've graciously told us about here, which is that we are to be ready. What a sweet and beautiful gift, God, this invitation into your kingdom, into your wedding feast. And yet how foolish, how foolish and rebellious would we be, God, if we say, sure, but then don't make ourselves ready. Lord, I know there might be some here today who are not ready. God, I pray that your word would pierce, that it would judge the thoughts and intentions of their hearts so that they would make themselves ready. Lord, I pray to not hide any sort of Christian position or tradition or ritual to make us, to give us the, the key into your kingdom. No, only, only you are the way. There is no other way besides you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those who do know you, that they would be persevering in obedience, that they would embrace this next year and in these days before this next year, God, to put their lives in order. Not by self, will God. We have no power in ourselves, but by the power of your spirit. We know what we've been called to do. With the glad expectation before us, God, enable us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.